Hi, welcome to The Brook. My name is Mochi Kabi. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the Gospel of John. We're in John again. Uh, this time we're going to be in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be for our time together today. If you don't have a Bible, it's okay. The words will be on the screen uh, so that we could track through the text together. We are closing our series, A People. A People, where we have been working through the marks that mark us and move us forward as we seek to grow a people from all people passionate for God. We've been unpacking the values that should define and describe and drive us serving as vehicles for our personal and collective growth. Uh, today, we are closing by continuing to unpack the value that our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Our neighbor's good is as important as our own. It is a value birth from this clear and compelling picture that God, through the scriptures, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, continuously paints this picture of human flourishing where there's peace with God, there's functional life-giving relationship, there's significant purpose being expressed, there's common good being experienced in true, beautiful, noble, good ways. Flourishing, it's amazing. It's not just birth from this clear and compelling picture painted, it's birth from this clear and concise commandment given. Love your neighbors as yourselves to love your neighbors with the dignity and the sincerity that they are due because they are made in the very image of God. To love our neighbors with the dignity and the sincerity that we would want directed to ourselves to love our neighbors as ourselves. Both of those realities giving birth to this value that our neighbors good is as important as our own. Now within every value is a stream or a rhythm, a call to action that we must take to consistently cultivate this value personally and collectively. Today, as we close, we're looking at this action of inviting others to journey with us. Invite others to journey with you. Now, presupposed in that call of action, presupposed in the call to action of invite others to journey with you is one, awareness that we're on a journey, two, acceptance that we're on a journey, and three, agreement with what that journey looks like and where that journey should lead us. Now, Absent of those things, specifically that latter part, agreement, absent of those things, we find ourselves meandering through life, wondering if we're making progress or even making a difference. And even some of us find ourselves in this weird space where we will confuse, we will mistake journeying towards something when we're actually wandering aimlessly because we don't have agreement on what this journey looks like and where this journey would lead us. Now, if you've ever taken a road trip or you've ever had to navigate in a place that's unfamiliar to you that you're unfamiliar with, you know, I know that clarity becomes our friend. 
Clarity is our friend. Clarity gives us a picture of where we're going and it helps us to measure if we're making progress. And one of the beautiful, humbling truths we have is that God gives us great clarity with the journey he invites us into. God himself gives us clarity with the journey he himself invites us into. It's a journey of discovery, relational depth, life, and faith. It's a journey where we know, enjoy, and make known the God who is. It's a journey where we grow into the truth that there is weight and beauty to life with Jesus, a life we should thirst for. It's a journey where we are progressively having a growing desire for God that is shaping everything else. It's a journey where we are able to become more whole as we experience the benefits of being known. It's a journey that as we continue to live out the truth that our neighbor's good is as important as our own, we are able to bear witness to greater experiences and expressions of flourishing. It's a journey, an adventure of relational depth, discovery, and life that God himself invites us into. And he becomes this bridge compelled by love to provide access for us to actually be on the journey. And that same love compels us to be a bridge between God, ourselves, and others into relational depth, discovery, life, and faith, revolving around this action of inviting others to journey with us. Now, there's a weight to that. <laughs> there's a weight, there's a privilege, there's a nobility, there's a responsibility, there's a weight to that reality, but that weight shouldn't overwhelm us in a way that causes us to overcomplicate what it entails, invitation. Now enter John chapter one. John chapter one is this demonstration of God on the move pursuing people for relational depth life together, faith. Not only is it this demonstration of God on the move, it is also a depiction of others inviting people to experience what they have found. It is a powerful picture of what it looks like to invite others to journey with us. There are several remarkable statements in John chapter one specifically the latter part of this chronicling of this interaction between Jesus, John the Baptist, and his disciples. Several statements. Um, let me actually give you, let me give you the seven, just for your own personal edification and devotion sometime during uh, this week. The seven statements that I just think are remarkable, they're significant, they are saturated with significant implications. Let me give you um, the seven. Now behold the Lamb of God. <laughs> now behold the Lamb of God. Follow me. Follow me. We have found. Come and see. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I saw you 
under the fig tree. And the last being, you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Those seven statements, they're just remarkable and they're bursting with significance. Now for our time today, we're only gonna take a few of them. We're actually only gonna take three of those statements. We're going to take three statements. We have found, come and see, and can anything good come from Nazareth? We are going to look at those three statements, work through some of their dynamics and their significant implications with the hope that they would help us be more thoughtful, more considerate, and even courageous in our conversations regarding Jesus and faith and in our invitations for others to journey with us. Not only that, hopefully they'll help us be more humbled by the fact that God invites us into this glorious journey. So that'll be the flow of our time, looking at those three statements, working through some of their dynamics and the significant implications they entail before closing with what I think is something that we dare not forget. So read with me and then we'll take it a bit by bit. Uh, John chapter one, starting in verse 35, it reads like this. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. Now, one of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and he said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. Now you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, uh, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him. Of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, behold, an Israelite in indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw you. I saw you. 
Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. We will never fully be able to articulate the significance of John chapter one. John chapter one contains some of the cornerstones of understanding Christianity. John chapter one, verses one through 18 specifically serve as a prologue where the gospel writer is presenting this powerful picture that is dripping with his intent. His intent is to showcase, showcase the greatness and wonder of Jesus Christ. His intent is to invite us into the greatness and wonder of Jesus Christ. This wonderful word that existed with God in the beginning and was God. But verse 14 says, became flesh and dwelt among us so that we can behold his glory, his greatness, his weight, his beauty, the glory of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It is a prologue leading to the unfolding of the wonder and the greatness of the work and Jesus for the purpose of belief. That's why he closes John chapter 20. Jesus did so much else. He did so many other things, but these things are included so that we would believe and by believing have life in his name. Sit in, soak in the gospel of John. There's glory here, all of the scriptures and John is unfolding them for us. Now, the transition from this prologue to the unfolding of this purpose happens through John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin. And John the Baptist serves as a transition in a few ways. One, in preparing people's hearts to receive the word of God. But then two, in pointing people to the one they've been waiting for, the scriptures have pointed towards Jesus the Christ. And not just pointing people generally to Jesus, but pointing his disciples specifically to Jesus. So Jesus's first disciples, his first followers, were also followers of John the Baptist, which leads us to this first statement we have found. We have found is a faith claim. It is a claim of faith being pulled into this relational pursuit of discovery of life, of faith. It is a faith claim and it is a faith claim made by two of John the Baptist's early disciples, Andrew and Philip. Now, it's made at different times, but it shows us something powerful. First, we're meant to see that this is a response to God's pursuit. 
They have found, we have found is a response to God actually finding and pursuing them. Now we see this in verse 38 where they're, tra they're trailing Jesus. He turns towards them and he says, what are you seeking? What do you want? What are you after? And they respond, yo, where are you staying? And then he invites them in. We see the intentionality of Jesus. But then we also see it in verse 43 where Jesus goes to Galilee and seeks out Philip and then says, follow me. We can even go back to the interaction before all of this with John the Baptist, where Jesus seeks out John the Baptist as John the Baptist is baptizing people. Jesus seeks him out to be baptized as well, not because he needs to be clean, but because he's trying to make a compelling case for who God is and how God is at work in and through Christ. Now, John's even going to reference this. We can even go back all the way to Genesis, where in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin. They hide. They run from God. God shows up on the scene and he seeks them out. God is always on the move. He is pursuing. And whenever we arrive at a place where we could say we have found, it is first and foremost a response to God's pursuit. That's one dynamic at work here. This is a faith claim as well as a gift of faith. Another aspect that's at work here that I think is fascinating is the fact that this is a claim revealing thoughtful exploration. Thoughtful exploration and investigation into the claims others make about Jesus and the claims he, make about, he makes about himself. So when Jesus says, well, we'll come and see, they stay with him for the entire day. They're exploring, man. John the Baptist, our teacher said, now behold the lamb. And now they're exploring it. In fact, the center of the claims that they're exploring are two titles that show up in this interaction. The first being Lamb of God and the latter being Son of Man. The Lamb of God, it reflects the entirety of their sacrificial system and the way the Jews were to relate to God. Cluing them back to Exodus chapter 12, where God would pass over sin for the purpose of restoration and restoring relationship through the death of a lamb. John says, now behold the lamb of God. Now behold the lamb of God who will restore not just an ethnic people, but all of humanity. But the other Title is the son of man. So you get that at the end. You'll see angels ascending and descending on the son of man. The son of man is this title reserved for this unique person that the people of Israel were waiting for. This unique person who was a God man. So even Daniel chapter seven, Daniel chapter seven has Daniel having this weird vision of rulers, of empires all falling before one who was worthy, who has a face like one of a son of man. This is Daniel chapter seven, verse 13. Jesus 
takes on this moniker and that he uses it here and then he will use it in Mark as well where he says the son of man will be coming with the clouds just like you heard in Daniel chapter 7. It reflects this unique relationship between God and man and this unique authority that's attached to it. These are the centers of the claims of Christ that he is fully human yet fully divine, existing to bridge the gap between God and humanity for the purpose of relationship we have found reflects thoughtful exploration into those claims. There's some more dynamics at work here. What's clear is that this statement of we have found isn't dripping with like this pristine, deep, theological paradigm. Rather, it shows initial, sincere faith that will lead to progressive understanding. They don't have a clue on the fullness of the implications of the claims that they're even exploring. We know this to be true because they're gonna be confused coming soon. They're like, yo, you're making some claims we don't understand. This is progressive moves towards greater understanding, which is Christianity. Christianity is faith-seeking understanding. Like I, I grab a hold of some things I believe regarding who Christ is, and it pulls me into a deeper pursuit of discovery to understand, enjoy, and believe even greater. It's faith-seeking understanding captured by that phrase we have found. There's more dynamics here. Another dynamic is not only is this not dripping with like this pristine, well-polished theological paradigm, this is showing that we have found runs alongside sincere doubts. Now, we know this to be ca the case because of the immediate context with Nathaniel, we'll get there. But then also the context that's coming soon after this and in the following chapters where they are confronted with the reality of their doubt. So there's even this one passage where Jesus starts making some more claims and he's like, I am the bread of life. I am what sustains all of humanity. Now, they don't understand that fully, but he's like, I am what sustains you to your very soul. And if you want life, eat me. And they're like, yo, I didn't sign up for this camp. Like there is no amount of pickles or chimchurri or Tony Sachery's that is going to make your body tasty. And so some people stop following Jesus. Now Jesus turns to these people here and he says, are you going to leave too? And they're like, nah, where else can we go? You have the very words of life. But there was doubt still in their hearts and there was doubt that would show up later but they have found they found didn't eliminate all doubt it was just sincere desire willingness and direction in the midst of it there's all of these dynamics here which lead to a few conclusions let me apply it in a few ways the first is this we should not be quick to disqualify ourselves or others by attaching prerequisites to initial faith. We shouldn't do that. 
We shouldn't disqualify ourselves or others by attaching prerequisites to initial faith. One prerequisite would be this deep, profound paradigm of all, like that's not even real. That's not the way this thing works. Another prerequisite would be a mark that shows up later as we progress in maturity. Let me give you an example of this. Like, so my, my daughter, um, <laughs> my oldest, she started walking around six, six months, six, seven months. Now, it terrified me. It filled me with some level of excitement. So I grew up and one of the scary movies of my time when I was a kid was Child's Play. And Child's Play was this movie with this um, demonic doll. And so you had this demonic doll with a big head. Now, uh, because of my genetics and the genetics of my wife, um, big heads were in our family. So you had this little six month year old uh, girl with this large head walking towards us. And it was just like super traumatizing. But again, so, so that's why I was terrified. But I was excited because I didn't expect it. I didn't expect her to walk this early. Now, if she didn't walk, would I have been disappointed? Of course not. Because I don't expect that until further down the line. And there's certain things that we shouldn't expect of people into further down the line. Maturity and faith is a journey. We have found should cause us to celebrate initial faith and be more thoughtful as we move alongside people towards greater maturity. We have found we don't disqualify or diminish. We celebrate and come alongside. We have found. Now, there's another statement here. It actually flows out of we have found, which is come and see. Come and see is invitation language. Come and see is a statement that we see all throughout the scriptures. But in this passage, we actually see made by Jesus and Philip. And the ways in which they make this statement reveal different aspects of its richness and its depth. So Jesus makes it. Well, come and see. You're curious. Awesome. Explore it. Come, come see where I'm staying. I will inconvenience myself of my personal space and my private time so you can explore what's going on in your heart. Come and see. I will make room for your good hospitality. Now, Philip makes this, right? So Philip is like, yo, we have found the one the scriptures have been pointed us towards, the ones our hearts have been anxiously waiting for, the ones that John the Baptist has been, we found him. And he goes to Nathaniel, someone he cares deeply about, who is going through some real issues, that's coming, and he says, yeah, we found him. Nathaniel responds flippantly, and he's like, well, come and see. Come and see is a personal invitation which entails a level of inconvenience to make room hospitality, but come and see also implies, let's journey together, <laughs> come with me. Now, let's say that you're invited into a function. Somebody invites you to a function or a party. Uh, <laughs> if you're like me, and, or I think really most people, your first response is, some version of, well, who's going to be there? Because who's going to be there is going to determine whether or not I'm going to go. 
And if I go, it's gonna determine whether or not I'm gonna drive my own car. Now, depending on how that person answers that question, you act, but you know what I know? The likelihood of you going to said function or event increases substantially if the person is really saying, well, yeah, such and such may be there. Ugh. This is what's gonna go down, eh. but you know what? I'm going with you. Come on, let's just go together. When there's a personal invitation, a journey together, we are more likely to respond because of presence. When you could vouch for something being good, and when you have presence to go alongside it, we are more likely to respond affirmatively. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and say, all right, I'm coming. Now, let me apply that in a few ways. We cannot, we cannot overstate how much hospitality is at the heart of Christianity. We can't overstate that. That hospitality is at the heart of Christianity. This is a Christian message that God has made room for people to be in relationship. And he has made room by inconveniencing himself to the point of death. This is why the gospel writers, this is why the writers of the New Testament pick up on this truth. And in Romans 15, 7, you have welcome one another the same way that Christ has welcomed you. Meaning that the cross sets a standard of welcoming and hospitality, of making room for the purpose of relationship, of making room for the purpose of somebody experiencing good. And we cannot overstate that, nor should we overcomplicate it, that so much good could happen across the table sharing a meal. So much good could happen and come from meaningful conversations. So much good and life change can come from ordinary hospitality that's attached to a sincere invitation for somebody to journey with you. Jesus demonstrated it. Philip demonstrated it and lives are changed forever more. We need to reclaim the power and simplicity and need of hospitality in the life of Christianity. Now, the last statement, the last statement, can anything good come from Nazareth? It is dripping with obvious pride and obvious prejudice, even if you're not fully aware of the context. The pride and prejudice is obvious, but it's not just dripping with pride and prejudice, it's dripping with pain. Now, let's explore some of that. Pride, so here is the context. Um, Galilee, <laughs> was this area of the world that was looked down on by people who were in Jerusalem. People in Jerusalem 
looked down on people in Galilee. Now within the, the Galilee region, there was Nazareth. And people who were Galilean looked down on people in Nazareth. It was even seen as even more like remote backwood type of place for remote backwood type of people. And that actually should have surprised us. We have that reflex in our hearts to look down on people based on where they come from. They're from the wrong side of the tracks. They're from that part of town. Oh, that's that's humanity. That's pride. And it's prejudice to now treat people a particular way to diminish their inherent value based on social, cultural, political, geographical dynamics and aspects. And we need to be aware that that reflex of our heart shows up in the ways that we diminish and dismiss Jesus and Christianity. Oh, that's for those people who aren't quote unquote learned. That's for those people who quote unquote exist in poor spaces. As if Christianity isn't rooted in the reality of a love told through death and generosity and willingness for the sake of all people. But pride and prejudice aren't just there. There's, there's some pain here. Nathaniel is in an existential crisis. An existential crisis is a crisis of existence. It is where circumstance and life has challenged what you've known to be and what you believe about yourself and life. It is a crisis of existence of reality. And he's experiencing that. He's experiencing this social, political, spiritual crisis. He is a young Hebrew boy who has been told the stories of old of the God who rescued his people from oppression and slavery in Egypt and in every other circumstance, whether it was the Assyrians, whether it was the Babylonians, God rescued them. But now they're under Roman rule, stripped of their dignity, stripped of their power, stripped of their right to be a people. Crisis. Social, political, spiritual crisis. God, have you forgotten us? God, are you still true? Are we waiting in vain? Crisis. And he's hurting. He's sad. You see this. Yet, while he is, quote unquote, at the edge of himself because of the circumstances he's in, he is not outside of the eyes of God. God sees him. God sees him. And to apply that for us, Yes, there is pride. Yes, there is prejudice in our lives, in the lives of people that would cause us to diminish the greatness and the beauty of Christ. And there is pain. There is real circumstances and challenges that would cause us to question the meaning of life as we know it. But none of that puts us outside of the scope outside of the eyes of God. And none of that 
puts us away from somebody coming to us and saying, hey, we have found, come and see. Everybody is an invitation away from greater life. And Nathaniel, even drowning in his pride, his prejudice, and his pain, was intrigued enough to move forward. And we should believe that people can be as well. All of this is at work here and so much more. But what we must be captured with and captured by is God's pursuit of us. God is pursuing. God is moving. God is pulling people in. And when we accept that, he's pulling people into a journey, ourselves included, we are able to start to see through the eyes of love to see that, wait a second, if God is on the move seeking out others, we should be as well. We should be on the move seeking out the good of others, their ultimate good being knowing and enjoying the God who is, who makes sense of their souls and makes sense of the world and says, I want you. Realizing that people are just an invitation away. They're an invitation away of life. And if we have the courage and the humility, the consideration, we could say, come journey with me. And we'll walk towards life together. Would that be true of us? Let's pray. Christ, the God who sees and the God who comes for us, thank you. Would we have the humility to see as you see, to seek to serve, and then to invite others on a glorious journey of knowing you. In your name we pray, amen.